there needs to be more nuanced portrayals of women in general and not just nuanced but like raw authentic women that maybe they're not likable women characters this is faux real a podcast where i chat with indie filmmakers about their filmmaking processes their inspirations and what their stories mean to them and i'm your host don borchardt I know it's been a while since I put out an episode, so I'm really excited to be back and doing interviews again. I started with some interviews from Sundance 2022, unfortunately, of course, not in person again, but still happy to be able to do them virtually. So this first one is with documentary filmmaker Rita Baghdadi and her film Sirens. Sirens is about a Middle Eastern all-female metal band, and it really gets personal with the members of the band as they overcome personal issues and inner band relationships with each other and relationships with their families. It also goes into larger issues that are going on within Lebanon and Middle Eastern culture. Hi, my name is Rita Baghdadi. I'm the director, producer, and cinematographer of Sirens, a coming-of-age documentary about the co-founders and guitarists of the Middle East's first all-female metal band in Beirut, Lebanon. How did you meet the women of Slaves to Sirens and decide to make a film with them? So I met them pretty organically through um, their music. They had just put out their EP in 2018. And um, I sort of stumbled across it and was blown away by their talent. Later, I found a picture of them online uh, where there was, you know, all five young women standing in a forest in Lebanon wearing all black. And um, I saw, you know, this one of them on the left side of the frame, and that happened to be Lilas. And she was, you know, had her arms crossed and she was looking all angsty. And I remember just sort of thinking I have to meet these young women. The other side to that story is, you know, it was around a time when I was really looking for a film to portray Arab people uh, from the Middle East slash North Africa, where my family is from Morocco. And I really wanted to have the opportunity to counteract the negative stereotypes that I grew up with about that region on film and especially connect to young women in the region. And so this felt, you know, like it just, it was too good to be true. And I contacted the girls online and then I struck up a conversation with Lila specifically and we just sort of hit it off and we would, you know, we video chatted for hours and we talked about everything. And, and then she invited me and, and the band invited me to come stay and uh, film for a little bit. And that's how it all started. So you really spearheaded this film, but I noticed that there's also the other members of the crew and like post-production are several women mostly. And obviously the film features women in this Slaves to Sirens metal band. So I was wondering if you could talk about deeper meaning of female-led artistic practices in the Middle East. Like, why is that a big deal? Why is that meaningful, like personally and broadly? Uplifting other women and uplifting particularly, you know, women of color is something I'm dedicated to. Um, I mentor, I, you know, I give back, I try to give back as much as I take, you know, especially within the industry. So making a film about women, you know, well, it's not the only, I don't only make films about women, but 
I do feel like there needs to be more nuanced portrayals of women in general and not just nuanced, but like, you know, raw, authentic, like women that maybe they're not always likable, you know, women characters, maybe, you know, maybe they're, maybe it's, it it can be too raw for people at times. You know, I, I think that there should be more characters like that, that women you know, fall into that role. And so, you know, that was important for me. And then behind the camera, also to have a team that was almost all female was also very important to me whenever possible. I found, you know, the best women that could do the job. There's some key males on the team as well. And they were amazing, like our composer, but by and large, it was mostly female team. It's super exciting to see. And I don't think that it's something that we really saw like 10 years ago. Um, and now I'm seeing it a lot, especially with women of color. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, I think partly because, you know, women are just getting more opportunities now. And so they're able to work their way up and and get those positions. Um, but also, you know, it's just when it, when it's a priority, you find those people when you make it a priority. Um, so for example, our sound woman who also became a co-producer on the film because she was so integral, Tatiana Eldada, she is one of two sound people in the Beirut area um, that are women. And so the other sound woman was unavailable. So we met with Tatiana and um, she ended up becoming, she's like my soul sister now, you know? I mean, we, we were born two days apart and we're just I just can't even explain the connections that we made um, there as being a woman crew. And and I don't think that the film would be the same or uh, even half as good, you know, half as intimate if we had a male sound person, for example, not because male sound people are less good at their jobs, but because it's just the nature of the intimacy um, and, and being in a space, a safe space with all women, then that was just really important to the, to the storytelling. So not only are the people in this group, women, but you also are really focused on Lilas and Sherry, who are also sorting through issues with their sexuality and kind of really understanding that they're not fitting into the heterosexual expectations that their parents have for them. Like one of your opening scenes of the film is Lilas' mom saying, like she has to live at home until she gets married and starts having children Mm -hmm. and her mom is like we have to get that thinking out of you that like you're a strong independent woman and can live on your own and that like that thinking will eventually go away can you talk about like the importance of including these things in your film and what it also means to be making a project like this for people to see in Lebanon and the Middle East Yeah, the central theme of the film being sort of like, or the central sort of genre of the film film being like coming of age, you know, I think scenes like that are are really important for people to contextualize, like, why Lilas is the way she is, who raised her, where does she come from, what does her home life look like, but also, you know, we're trying to challenge expectations with this film but in order to do that you do have to understand the culture a little bit and I think that you know for people that don't quite get uh you know maybe it's not always dangerous quote unquote for you to be out as you know a queer individual in the Middle East in a place like Beirut for example which is pretty progressive it really is family dependent and so it depends on 
who your parents are and what their expectations for you are. And so I felt like it was really important to understand Lila's and where she was coming from. Um, in order to do that, I had to understand her mom and what her expectations for her daughter were. And, you know, her mom grew up in a different generation. She grew up during the Civil War where she just didn't have the freedoms that Lila's had. And so for her to see Lila's going out at 11 p.m. to go to a party on the other side of town or to, you know, play a rock show, you know, for a bunch of men, you know, in a, in a smoky nightclub or whatever, you know, these things she just didn't di do as a kid. And so, you know, Lila's being, you know, having reached the age of like 25 at that point was really antsy to, to leave the nest. And her mother is like, well, that's just not what you do. But in the end, I think there was growth for both of them. You know, Lila softening and understanding her mother a little bit more and her mother realizing that she can't, you know, control her daughter for the rest of her life. And to me, that was just a beautiful journey to witness. Yeah, there's a great moment towards the end of the film where you show Lila's bedroom and there's a like queer rainbow flag hanging up on the wall right behind where she sits when she like chats with friends online. And you see her mom standing in the doorway, just kind of looking at it with a very like thoughtful facial expression. Like she's just kind of taking it all in. I wanted to go back to what you're talking about with her mom coming from a different generation and experiencing the civil war. So as you're shooting this film, the explosion happens in Beirut, which was August 4th, 2020. As I'm sure we all remember that time, but I am assuming you were probably in the country at that time. Um, I was scheduled to be, in fact, but I had changed my ticket and I cannot for the life of me remember why, but some scheduling conflict. Oh, wow. So before the explosion happened, I had actually changed my ticket and I pushed it back by like a week. And so I actually would have been there and the place where I stay is pretty much right behind the port and so um you know oh I, I might have been involved in it if I had been there but you know just happenstance and so I got there I think four days or a few days after the explosion so I saw the the aftermath and and Lilas I was actually the Lilas was texting me when it happened and so she like I have a blood-curdling <laughs> message from her on whatsapp <laughs> Um, where she didn't, she thought they were being bombed or something, you know, she didn't know what it was at, at first. And so, yeah, it was really, um, it was a, the PTSD it was palpable, which is why I included it in the film, because I saw yeah. a clear loss of innocence in Lila's, a clear shift in the, her view of the world, <laughs> her worldview shifted when, when the explosion happened. And I just felt like that was my, it was my duty to include that and, and somehow contextualize it in, in, a, in a personal way around her micro story. Part of my cultural background is Native American and we there's a lot of discussion about trauma being passed down through generations and it's something that Lisa brings up after that happens and she says that after it happened she realizes that she inherited trauma from her parents generation and I was wondering if you could speak on that and maybe from like your own personal family history and what that means to you and how you maybe personally deal with that those feelings yeah I mean I think it's something that the whole I feel like collectively the world is sort of realizing like more recently now that ever, ever, or at least accepting and talking about more that like 
you know, trauma is passed down and, and, you know, parents aren't, uh, parents are fallible and, you know, we, you know, they try their hardest, but they, they bring their baggage um, to, to their children and, and then children do that again to their children. And so I think that it's just not something that we've all really realized until more recently, unless it's part of your cultural background. So I, I think it's a, it's overall a positive thing, but um, to, to talk about it. And I mean, in my family, it's funny, I'm also, I've been making on the side, just sort of a fam, uh, a, a family story, a documentary about my father and realized that actually those themes are really present in that film. And it's the, it's sort of the way he calls it a spin, which I think is really an interesting, uh, interesting word for him. His English is his third language, but um, you know, the way that your parents treated you, the way that their parents treated them, and then the way that you treat your, your kids and, and even siblings. And so the personal, you know, traumas of my family are, are probably very similar to most families around money and, you know, <laughs> um, or abuse or, you know, there's, there's all of the, all of those things present. So I really connected with Lila's when she said that. And I think that, um, I think, you know, part of the reason she wanted to be so open on camera and, and make this film with me and, and be as vulnerable as she did is because she wants to make a difference in people's lives. And she wants to be an inspiration for others, you know, a, a human one, not a, not a, you know, a role model, you know, in the perfect sense, but just like a human inspiration to be yourself and to embrace those things and to talk about them more. Maybe I would have to put more thought into this, but just like based on what you're saying, I feel like maybe our generation is able to talk about these things more and understand them more because these conversations seem to be more acceptable now and we can talk to each other online about them and like share information and there's more openness about like mental health and therapy and things like that. And I just wonder if this is something that was really talked about until now, because I don't know that it has been like generational ancestral trauma. No, I mean, certainly not within my family. Like you just held it in, you know, and my, my grandparents, they're incredible, amazingly loving and caring people, but, you know, never complained a day in their life. And that passed down to my mom who, you know, never felt like she could complain about anything, you know, and that sort of, and then it starts to go and go and go. And you just, at what point does it stop and reverse? And then all the negative side effects of that. And so, yeah, I, I think that it can only go so far and that's maybe that's, we've hit a critical mass with it. And that's why our generation is like, no more. I also think the internet has a lot to do with it because, because it's just easier to talk about things when you're just a, a name on the internet and you you don't you can be anonymous more or less and and then it just creates an atmosphere where anyone can say anything for good or for bad <laughs> yeah for sure i think that definitely helps mm-hmm. shifting a little bit the women in the film use music to express themselves and obviously you're an artist as well you're a filmmaker so I was wondering if you could talk about how you got into filmmaking and the value that it's had in your life and expressing yourselves and maybe some of the themes and things that you've really focused your career on. Yeah, I I mean, I feel like just as far back as I can remember, certainly like from the age of eight, I can remember just loving being behind the camera and always having a camera in my hand. And I think I just started to, you know, see the world through the lens. And that is, that was where I felt comfortable. And that's how I engaged with things. Um, that's how I made sense of things. I taught myself how to edit 
found when I was 13 and, you know, really changed the way that I experienced things. And so as a storyteller, I don't, it's like, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't think I make films just to make films. I feel like I make films because there's this primal need to connect with people on a deeper level. And I think when you have a bigger cause, like we're making a film together, when there's like this collective effort and there's something in it for them as well to be able to share their story or to be able to share their music or whatever it may be. I think it just gives you that opportunity to connect on a deeper level. And I think that is really why I make films. And that's why I chose documentary over fiction. You know, so it's really not about the quote unquote filmmaking for me, even though that that's the fun part, but it's like, it is this real need to, to connect. And so I think that started early on, whether I don't think I realized that until real recently, but I also had a, I had a lot of influence in my life around media as well. My dad was a like sort of an amateur photographer and he was really good at it. And he would take pictures of everything. He would drive me nuts because he would take pictures of me all day, like me and my sister. And um, we would, you know, I would boycott food so that he would stop taking photos. <laughs> so I'm like, I now do it to people. <laughs> like, put the camera down, Rita. Um, but uh, my grandfather on my mom's side was the director of NBC um, News in Chicago in the 50s and started like the first TV production studio, I think, in Lagos, Nigeria in, the, in 63. And so, yeah, and then like my, one of my uncles is like a sound guy for ABC. And I always watched documentaries growing up. So I had a lot of sort of influence in that way, but I, di I didn't really know I could be a filmmaker as a, as a career, you know, until even after college, even it, maybe just until I moved to Los Angeles and then realized there's, there's a whole industry here. And I always, I tell like the people that I mentor, for example, it's, I'm like documentary filmmaking is isn't a career it's a lifestyle <laughs> like you have to be in it for the right reasons and it takes a lot out of you and and I think that the, the the ones that are really in it for those reasons are the ones that you know make them make the most beautiful films in my opinion so your film has some really beautiful intimate moments with the bandmates interacting with each other and with their families but then also some really cool fun scenes where they're playing shows they're like out partying so I was just wondering what were some of, for you, as you're shooting these scenes, what are some of the most memorable and like beautiful and meaningful moments that you got to be a part of? Oh, I mean, I mean, certainly the, the band fight, not because, you know, it's great to watch people fighting, but I think a lot came out to the surface and it felt cathartic for a lot of the band and, and certainly me as a witness to just see things being said that had been sort of wanting to be said, quote unquote, and, and to be, and to, to have the permission and to have the access to be there and witness that like that was a beautiful moment for me as a filmmaker to have that trust. Um, but also the scene towards the end of the film when Lilas goes on a date and then she's recounting the story to Sherry and then the revolution, you know, sort of catches up with them. That scene, I, I think while I was filming it, I didn't even realize how kind of incredible it was. And it's mostly all one take. We did cut in just for time's sake, but like I, I, I shot the whole thing in one take. And so it's like a half hour take or something, you know? And I think I was just focused on being able to like hear the girls and, and make sure that the story was, was being captured. But when the revolution came and sort of overtook them and, you know, when we watched that in the edit, we were like, 
oh wow, like this is kind of all, all the dots have been connected of this movie. And that's kind of how I knew we had a, a movie was after like kind of watch re-watching that scene. That would scene was incredible. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end. So I just wanted you to talk about where people can follow the film, like on social media. And if you have a website or anything like that. Sirens premieres this Sunday, January 23rd, as part of the World Cinema Documentary Competition at Sundance. And that's at Sundance.org. You can get a ticket there. We're playing again on January 25th, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific. um, And you have a 24-hour window to watch it. And then you can follow us on Instagram at Sirens Documentary, on Twitter at Sirens Doc, D-O-C, and our website is sirensdocumentary.com. Thank you so much. This was so lovely. Thank you. It's It's been great. Really nice to meet you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Faux Real. Sirens has been getting a lot of buzz at Sundance, so I hope that you're able to check out its second screening online. Go to Sundance.org to get a ticket and check them out on social media. Thank you guys for listening. The music is Lost and Bound by Tali and Kali. The podcast artwork is by Whitney Salgado, and I'm your host, Dawn Borchardt.